6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 1, through 8, verse 14. In the weeks succeeding the marriage, the villagers typically assemble. A thrashing board is set up as a throne in which the newly married pair take their seats as king and queen. There are songs of the physical charms of the pair, the dances in which the bride and the bridegroom take part, including a sword dance performed by the bride with a naked sword in one hand. So these are some of the customs that are associated with this. The bridegroom is sometimes called Solomon as an imaginative designation of a person, as an ideal beauty or what have you. And we find a lot of this still embodied in the Syrian wedding customs. You can look this up in the Jewish Encyclopedia or references of that kind to get a flavor of the traditions that seem to accompany what we have um, laid out here. Now, some of the lessons that this implies, of course, the need for continual creativity in marriage is suggested here. Ruts are to be avoided, overcome, if you will. All things are permissible if agreeable to both parties is the flavor of what the instruction is here. How fair and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights, verse 6. See, following the erotic dance, lovemaking begins. This is thy stature is like to a palm tree and thy breast to a cluster of grapes. The Hebrew word there is tamar, which translated palm tree or date palm. It actually refers to the flower out of which develops large clusters of juicy, sweet fruit. And uh, the Hebrew word eshkol is clusters, refers to the dark brown or golden yellow cluster which grows at the summit of the branches and beautifies the appearance of the palm tree. Now, you probably, if you've been to Israel, you've seen this image of two men carrying a bunch of grapes on a pole. The bunch of grapes is so large, it's on a pole between two shoulders. These two guys, are, that is Joshua and Caleb. And that, that is known as the grapes of Eshkol. It is actually the symbol of the ministry of tourism of Israel, drawn, of course, from the... Uh, when Moses sent out the 12 spies, the two came back with a favorable report. That was Joshua and Caleb carrying this bunch of grapes so large that it was on a pole between them. And so uh, that's the echo that we're seeing here uh, in the Song of Songs. Moving on. I said, I will go up to the palm tree and I will take hold of thy boughs thereof. Now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine and smell of, of thy nose like apples. And the roof of thy mouth or the palate like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. So this is somewhat like the song, Kisses Sweeter Than Wine, if you will. Or what it really translates in here is the moving the lips of the, sleep, of the sleeping and uh, the lips of those that are asleep to speak. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward or upon me. There again is this third time of that commitment. During courtship, that phrase implied security. My beloved is mine and I am his. That was chapter 2 verse 16. After the marriage it speaks of submission. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Chapter 6 verse 3. 
During the adjustment periods, we find this, again, accompanying doubts. So it speaks to stability. I'm me, beloved's, and his desire is toward me. So we have these three statements, but in the context, they, they imply something a little different emphasis, security, submission, and stability in those three occasions. And it's been suggested this whole passage is incurring creativity in sexual relations. The, the net of all of this is the, a call towards creativity. Couples should not allow themselves to get into a rut in this or any other aspect of their lives. This is focusing on the sexual aspect, but in marriage we should be working to keep it an adventure, keep it exciting. No kind of sexual activity between married couples is sinful or unclean as long as it is acceptable to both parties. If acceptable to both parties, uh, this would have seemed to endorse it. Many marital tensions derive from an inappropriate prudishness and a misunderstanding in this area. That's what we believe is the primary application of this passage. Denial on the one hand and imposition on the other are two limits to be avoided. Avoid denial on the one hand and avoid imposing something on your partner. No, it should be acceptable to both sides. That's the ground rule here. Okay, so we're in fifth idol and uh, we're moving from the 10th down to, to the next one. Come, my beloved, let us go forth in the, into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. That's verse 11. This is a longing for home. It's a desire for recre a recreational break. A weekend away, as we, as we would describe it. Let's go into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let's, let's, let's get out of the rut. Let's get out of the routine, see? We all need an occasional respite especially the wife, especially the wife. Let's go get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish and whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee thy loves. Ooh. See, ostensibly, what they're going to they're return to the region of their original courtship. That's probably the flavor here. The word loves in the Hebrew, dod, is in the plural, which obviously refers to sexual loves. And so uh, the vine has budded. And I think that's referring to the relationship, not the vines. Verse 13, the mandrakes give a smell. At our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. Now, these mandrakes show up in the Old Testament a number of places. They are in flower and giving off a fragrance. The Hebrew word for mandrakes is dude, the same root as sexual love, incidentally, as exciting sexual desire, favoring procreation. So they're looked, at, looked upon as an aphrodisiac, if you will. And they're known as the lover's flower, flower or as love apples. The Arabs call them the devil's ad, uh, apples. It is a whitish green flower with yellow apples the size of nutmeg and has a strong and pleasant odor. The fruits and, and the roots were used as an aphrodisiac and were thought to stimulate sexual arousal. And that's the background of Genesis 30. If you recall, the mandrakes are key in that whole passage there. Some authorities regard their reputation as fanciful. Some associate them with the mandragora uh, of which is uh, which has no definite scent. And uh, so that makes that uh, uh, rather problematic. Some argue the plant must be the citrus medica, the citron. So there's some scholastic debate exactly what's included and what's not. In any case, we're going to head up to the galley with the mandrakes blooming here. And he continues, O thou wert as my brother that sucked the breasts of my mother, 
when should I find thee without I would kiss thee, yea, I should not be despised. Another designed to express affection without restraint here. In the ancient Near East, displays of affection were frowned upon except in the case of certain family members. Thus the beloved wished that her husband were like a brother to her so that it would be acceptable to display her affection for him at any time, is the thought that seems to be behind this. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house who would instruct me. I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. So despite her lover's previously expressed complete satisfaction, she still seeks to learn and improve. The beloved playfully assumed the role of an older uh, sister. And uh, I would lead thee. A verb is always used of a superior leading an inferior. She often assumes the role of the mother. The lady of the house would give special wine to the guests, so, she, so the beloved would share the characteristics of a sister, an older sister, a mother in the relationship to her. The song also portrays the lovers as friends, back in chapter 5 and elsewhere. His left hand should be under my head, and his right hand should embrace me. So the instruction continues. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. There's that admonition again, that caution flag, if you go. Remember, this is a choral work, so this is a refrain showing up in, in the music, if you will. It's now a familiar refrain. It's slightly altered. In 2.7, it was in the context of marriage. In 3.5, it was in the context of courtship. Here, it's in the proper place, so it has a slightly different tone here. Sexual passion should not be aroused in any place where it cannot or shouldn't be satisfied. That's the really the thought. And so caution is appropriate. Anyway, applications of all of this. As before, creativity and nurturing the relationship is the sort of the theme. Notice how often Shulamite takes the initiative in the relationship. Normally it's the man that takes the initiative. Here it's interesting that Shulamite takes the initiative in the relationship. She's not on a performance basis, yet this stimulates her toward continual refinement and improvement. There's a lesson here for all of us. Expressing unconditional love should not lead to complacency. Think about that. Sexual passion should not be aroused where it cannot be satisfied. I think we've covered that before. And what does this imply, by the way, for sexually oriented movies? There's no place for a believing Christian in those situations. The value of getaway weekends is encouraged here, without the kids and so forth. Creative time alone is essential, not an option. It's essential. Okay, so we're, we've been through these. We're now going to pop down to the next one here. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. This question starts out the same way as it did back in chapter 3 and chapter 6. And it's always in reference to the Shulamite. Coming to the apple tree where she first won his love, they now renew their love covenant. That's interesting. Coming up from the wilderness suggests that they had left Jerusalem via the Jericho Road, came up the Jordan Valley, left the wilderness by coming through the Bethshon Pass to Shunem. And this would be the same route that they took when going up to Jerusalem in the wedding procession. So they're revisiting re, uh, their previous steps. It seems to be the flavor here. The wilderness or desert had two symbolic associations in the Old Testament. The wilderness was associated with the 40-year trial period for the nation Israel. 
In their love, the couple had overcome trials which threatened their relationship, the insecurity of the beloved back in chapter 1, the foxes and the indifference in chapters 2 and 5 that we talked about before. The desert or wilderness was also used as an image of God's curse in Jeremiah 22 and Joel 2. So the couple coming up out of the wilderness suggests, in a certain sense at least, that they'd overcome the curse of disharmony that was pronounced on Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3.16. Continuing, set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Now, a seal or a signet ring, the set of seal upon the heart, was an emblem of authority. It was worn on the right hand, or it was against the heart in a string around the neck. The seal upon, set a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, and so forth. It was a jewel from which one did not separate himself like a most prized possession. It's a seal, an identity. And so, love here, by the way, Avaha, embraces both Dod and Rea, plus much more. That's the strongest term you have. The energy of this love is compared to the energy of death, and Sheol strong means powerful. Sheol was irresistible is the concept that lies behind this. The jealousy of love, hard, cruel, and firm, whatever, as Sheol. Jealousy here is simply reasserting the right of possession or ownership, just as Sheol takes full possession of the dead. That's the parallel, that's the idiomatic concept here. Now, jealousy also burns against everyone who will try to violate the right of ownership. She hides in this jealousy as security against any unfaithfulness. Love of the right kind is a flame, kindled not by man, but by God. The flame of Jehovah, Yahweh, if you will. In Hebrew, it's a flame of the most vehement kind. And this is the only place in this book where God is actually mentioned, interestingly enough. Continuing, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly contemned. This kind of love cannot be extinguished, nor drowned. It is inextinguishable. inextinguishable. Nor can this love be purchased. And any attempt to buy it would be scorned and viewed as madness. Interesting. Now, any periodic celebration or renewal of the love covenant is a good thing. Many people in a wedding uh, weekend or whatever will renew their vows. They'll go through some form of ceremony to refresh or renew, to recommit the vows they took when they were first married. That's not a bad thing. That's a renewal. Be creative. Design your own. Some have a second wedding ceremony. Others return to the place of original courtship. A renewal of the love covenant before the Lord is never out of order. Okay, so we're now going to the final reflection. We have a little sister, and she hath no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she shall be spoken for? Speculation of a younger sister. Returning home, she converses with her brothers about her little sister. Or maybe it's a flashback. We're not sure here. Referring to the younger years, the day when she shall be spoken for refers to the day that suitors will come courting here. If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. If she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. See, in the ancient world, the brothers often served as the nearest guardians or counselors or chaperones, if you will. In the area of marriage, they often had precedence over the father and the mother. The brothers were the ones that really took charge, provided the protection, if you will. 
The Hebrew word for wall here is one chosen that implies a wall that stands firm and withstands every assault against it. And so it's, it's more like a rampart, if you will, or what have you. And uh, she will be rewarded for chastity. If she proves to be like a door, they will bar it with planks of cedar. They will not give her an opportunity for promiscuity. Her breasts, unlike her sisters, were fully developed and ready like towers, but only for her husband. She maintained her virginity and purity here. She says, um, see, I was, she says, I'm a wall in my breast like towers uh, than I was in his eyes as one that found favor. So anyway, she now begins to see the reason behind what seemed like harsh treatment by her brothers earlier, simply attempting to maintain her purity. So she may be recasting her attitudes that she uh, may have misunderstood earlier. That's, that's, that's the possibility here. Should not this faithful guardianship by her brothers be rewarded, is the, is the implied question. Solomon had a vineyard at Balhaman. He let out the vineyard unto keepers, every one for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. She reminds Solomon that he owns nearby vineyards that earn a thousand pieces of silver from his tenants. She says, my vineyard, which is mine, is before me. Thou, O Solomon, must have a thousand, and those that keep the fruit thereof, two hundred. She had her own vineyard, protected by her brothers, is also nearby, which also explains the supervision of the previous verses, if you will. Solomon has his thousand, namely the Shulamite herself. Her brothers were keepers of her as his vineyard and are also entitled to the earnings of 20%. So there's also zygometry of possibilities here. I'll stay out of that right now. Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions hearken to thy voice, cause me to hear it. So he responds favorably, and he may be asking for a song, in effect. Okay, hearken to your voice. Make haste, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of the spices. Now there's make haste, flee, so we can again be alone, is what she's saying. Repeating an invitation similar to chapter 2, verse 17, but this time it's unlimited. As she begins her song, they go outside to do what they planned in earlier reflections in chapter, and they disappear into the lower hills. So the song of songs now comes to an end. That wraps it up. Now, what are the applications here? Diligence and discipline to preserve chastity prior to marriage on the one hand and openness on the other. Intimacy, creativity within the marriage, those are all uh, suggested here. The Song of Songs shows that sex in marriage is not dirty. The physical attractiveness of a man and a woman to each other and the fulfillment of these longings in marriage are natural and honorable. Let's underscore all of that. But the book does more than extol physical attraction between the sexes. It also honors pleasing qualities in the lover's personalities. Also moral purity before marriage is praised. Premarital sex has no place in God's plans. Can't escape that. That's right up front, all the way through the 66 books that we call the Bible. Faithfulness before and after marriage is expected and honored. And such faithfulness in marital love beautifully pictures God's love for and commitment to his people. Ah, that where we start getting to allegories. And we're going to want to do that cautiously because allegories are a license to invent. You want to be careful with them. And many, by the way, many suspect that the Apostle Paul had this book in mind 
when he penned his famous chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Having gone through this, let's take a quick look as we wrap up the 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not agape, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of not prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not agape, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not agape, it profiteth me nothing. Agape suffereth long and is kind. Agape envieth not. Agape vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. It beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Agape never faileth. Whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether it be tongues, they shall cease. And whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And now we come to the logo of the Coin Institute. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know even as I also am known. Now abideth faith, hope, and agape, these three. But the greatest of these is agape. You know, it's interesting when you examine this here, you'll discover there are seven active participles. Stability in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, which echoes Psalm, uh, Song 8.5. Um, we have security in verse 7. It's echoed in verse 6 of Song. Strength is in verse 6 of Song, and it's verse 8 of 1 Corinthians. Stubbornness, if you will. Uh, steadfastness, maybe, in verse 6 of Song, uh, song 8, and uh, both verses 4 and 7 in 1 Corinthians. Sacrifice in verse 7 of each. Uh, self-control, verse 8 uh, in Song, and verses 5 and 11 in 13. And finally, selflessness, verse 11 and 12 in the Song, and verses 1 through 3 and 5. In So there is a parallelism of thought in both that some suggest it may, when Paul was penning 1 Corinthians 13, he could very well have been spending some meditative time in the Song of Songs. Speculation. Okay, we, th we went through the entire um, Song of Songs trying to emphasize a literal point of view, taking it on as a practical, useful, direct manual on improving marriages. And... Uh, that's great. We're not through yet, though. That was the primary foundational view. Uh, it's amazing how that not all commentators take that view. It's the one that we chose to take because we see it, we see it as the primary direct application of the text as it stands. And we think that's pretty unassailable. And there are many good scholars that, that accompany us in that emphasis. But we want to take the next session... We've completed now our literal view of this practical book. Okay, good. There's more. Next time, 
what I want you to do is review your notes and the text of the book and explore the ostensible allegorical allusions for our next session. Go through it yourself and glean it from the point of view, what is this saying about the relationship, our own relationship with our bridegroom, the shepherd king that's coming to set up his kingdom on the planet earth? What, what, what we're going to discover that there are, we're going to review the allegorical possibilities of Song of Songs. And we're also going to look at that allegorical perspective of the entire Bible from Genesis chapter th uh, 3 all the way to Revelation 22. And we're going to discover where there's Adam and Eve, Boaz and Ruth, all the way through the scripture, God uses the marriage to communicate intimacy with him. And uh, so it's a very, very important instruction that goes far beyond the sensual issues that we've been stumbling over through uh, the Song of Songs. So with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for your caring of us. We thank you for the extremes you've gone to that we might have life. And we seek that life in your word, Father, and through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gifts that you've given us. We ask you through that spirit and through your word to help us apprehend the treasures that are here for us in the Song of Songs and in your whole word. And help us to understand your desire for intimacy with us. Help us to understand what impedes that intimacy. Help us to be more effective stewards of these treasures you've given us of these opportunities before us, that in all these things we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our shepherd king, our bridegroom, our coming king indeed, Yeshua, our Lord Jesus Christ indeed. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store, or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640, and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study his word.